Our text is Psalm 11. Psalm 11. And we'll make two points. Flight in verses 1 through 3. And faith in verses 4 through 7. Flight or faith. First then, flight. Here's the situation. David, the king, is receiving some demoralizing advice. A group of people, uh, perhaps advisors, think he's under threat. Now, maybe it's, it's merely slander and political opposition, but more seems to be in view. They seem to think, if you look at the text, that he's in physical danger, maybe even mortal danger. And their counsel to him is to flee. Now, this would essentially mean abdicating his throne. So this is a serious crisis. David, however, he's already decided that these are voices of despair. And that he's not fleeing. He's staying put through the crisis, whatever the crisis is. And so he begins speaking to his advisors. And he says, in the Lord I take refuge. God is his safety and protection in the midst of this present danger. And notice as well that while it is true, of course, that the Lord is our refuge, there's an act of taking refuge in the Lord, which is necessary on our part. An act whereby we confess, we cling to the reality of his ever-present help in trouble. In the Lord, I take refuge. That's what David's doing in this psalm. And because he's done this, because he's not fleeing, what he does next is he turns the advice of his counselors into a somewhat indignant question. You can see he says, how then can you say to me, the you there is plural, how then can all of you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Birds do not stand and fight. They flee. And so David's advisors are advocating a bird-like flight to David. For look, for look, they continue. Now remember, David is quoting them here. For look, the wicked bend their bows and they set their arrows on the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. So, in other words, his advisors are saying to him, look, the situation is urgent. The wicked are plotting against you. There may even be threats against your life, and it looks to us like they are going to prevail. And we can get a clearer glimpse of the nature, or at least the root cause of the problem in verse 3. Verse 3 is the end of David's quoting of this council of despair. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
So according to David's counselors, the foundations of the society are being torn. They see anarchy. The institutions of the civil society appear to be breaking down. Virtue is under assault. And it appears to David's counselors that there's no reasonable prospect of restoring any kind of order, any kind of decent, common life. The wicked are shaking the very foundations of order. What in such a time, David, they ask, can the righteous do? And it's clear that they think the answer is nothing. Nothing but flee for safety. I think it's fair to say that we live in a time with a good bit of similarity to the time David's counselors think, anyway, that he's confronting. Our foundations are eroded. Our social consensus is breaking up, even on the most basic questions. Our republic is disintegrating. It's a very astute political commentator that I like named Yuval Levin. Levin has a new book called The Fractured Republic. And it's a penetrating analysis of the situation we're in and how we got there. We do live in a fractured republic. Or at least a republic that's fracturing. We live in a time of redefinitions, anarchic redefinitions of, and distrust in basic institutions. We live in a time when our common life is unraveling, where our discourse is polarized and heated and debased and coarse and usually fruitless if it's not hysterical. We live in a time where even basic moral assumptions, even assumptions about logic and reason, shared a couple decades ago, sometimes shared five minutes ago, are no longer shared. We live in a time where just a year or so ago, the president of the University of Iowa issued a statement about how they were going to clamp down on sexual assault on campus. And when she had finished her statement, at the end of it, she said, this is our plan, but human nature being what it is, No plan can be perfect. She received a firestorm of criticism for the use of the words human nature. There cannot be any human nature because that would mean some things would be natural. Other things would be unnatural. Certain things would be appropriate for human beings. Other things wouldn't. Human beings would have certain ends. Human nature is a dangerous concept. She retracted the statement. You cannot say human nature. So what many of us thought were pretty solid foundations, pretty self-evident, they're now crumbling ruins. They're relics. And so we have the rise of populist movements on the left and on the right. And they indicate to us that large swaths of the republic feel some kind of dislocation. They sense that something basic has gone awry. Now, I'm not going to analyze this in terms of our politics. However, I do want to say 
two things about the report of David's counselors here, which at least they think is true. You know, it's possible that David's counselors are overreacting, but David doesn't think so. You'll notice that in the text. David doesn't disagree with their analysis. He just disagrees with their solution of flight. So, in this situation, or situations like this, two things are to be avoided. The first thing I think that's important here, and this almost certainly afflicted David's counselors, is nostalgia. Nostalgia has to be avoided in a time like ours and in a time like this. Things were just so much better back then. Things were really great in the 50s. Unless, of course, you happen to be black. And you just wanted to sit at a lunch counter. Or you were just traveling, trying to find a hotel for your family on a family vacation. You think the Constitution is a sale today? Just read John Adams' Alien and Sedition Act. 1800. He closed the presses down that disagreed with him. Shut them down. You think our political discourse is debased, you should read some of the things from earlier political campaigns. In the campaign between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, Jefferson's camp accused Adams of this, quote, being a hideous, hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. And that's just the beginning of it. Adam's people said of Jefferson that he's a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, the son of a half-breed Indian squaw sired by a Virginian mulatto father. I'll spare you the rest. You can Google this stuff. Martha Washington even got involved in this. You don't like statist governments. The whole history of the world is full of them. That's all there is, actually, in most cases. Ours is tepid by comparison. Here's the thing about nostalgia. Everybody remembers the leeks and onions in Egypt. Nobody remembers the slavery and the oppression. And none of this is to say we're not fracturing. We are, I think. Nor is it to say that all times are equal. That would be silly too. But it is to say that nostalgia blinds a person to assessing the past honestly. And it tends to overlook the blessings and opportunities of the present. Nostalgia selectively filters. It's what I call the conservative temptation. Nostalgia. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, we're told this. Do not say, why were the old days so much better than these? It is not from wisdom that you say that. 
this longing and pining for another era when we didn't have to deal with all this and all that. That's not wise. And you know, the real problem with nostalgia, the reason it's unwise, and in fact it's forbidden by Scripture, is that God is sovereign over all time, and that means he sovereignly ordered this time and placed you in this time and no other time. And so nostalgia is just whining. It's just whining against providence. God has placed you in this time. Come to grips with it. The second thing to be avoided when the foundations are shaken is just what David's counselors serve up right here. Flight. Give up. Retreat. Withdraw. Forget about the public and civil order. It's all crumbling anyway. Why polish brass on a sinking ship? Flee to the mountains like a bird. Carve out a quiet life for yourself. Don't let yourself be disturbed. Turn the television off. It only gets your blood pressure up. These counselors are really prophets of doom and despair. And this sort of overreaction is is the flip side of nostalgia. The past was so good. The present is so unbearable. Flee. Flee. David does neither one of these things. He doesn't indulge in nostalgia, and neither does he flee. You know what else he doesn't do? He doesn't say, I have a counter-political agenda. What he does is more basic. It's more fundamental than that. He reaffirms his faith. Thus our second point, faith. The foundations are being destroyed. His advisors are unhinged a bit. And David stands and he affirms this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. This is the decisive line in the psalm. Verse 4. This king, for whom the earth is his footstool and heaven is his throne, this king whose city is everlasting and has unshakable foundations, This king of whom David is a type or a shadow. This king does not abdicate. He does not flee. And he is forever in residence. The Lord is in his holy temple. Habakkuk says, let all the earth keep silence before him. Including David's counselors. The Lord is in his holy temple. You know what the corollary of that is? Be quiet. Ecclesiastes also wonderfully says, God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let the roiling turmoil and tumult and the counsels of despair calm down. So in the midst of of all the social disorientation and all the uncertainty and all the instability, David reorients himself 
to the central reality of the cosmos, the heavenly throne and the one seated on it, the true north. This is just what John does for the churches in the book of Revelation. And this vantage point cannot be taken for granted. We have to reorient ourselves to it. And it changes the way everything then gets seen after we're reoriented. I'm very fond, I know I've mentioned it, I believe, in the past of the collection of Puritan prayers known as the Valley of Vision. And one of my favorite prayers in the collection starts like this. Thou great I am, fill my mind with elevation and grandeur at the thought of a being with whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. A mighty God who amidst the lapse of worlds and the revolutions of empires feels no variableness, but is glorious in immortality. This is the reorientation we need. The God who himself is the fullness of light and life and glory, and whose being is not enhanced by the whole created order or by the existence of a hundred million worlds. This is the God of Isaiah 40, where the prophet speaks of the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the incomparable God, the God who cannot be compared to any other item or being in some kind of sequence, the God whom Isaiah says no one has instructed and no one has become his counselor, the God whose understanding is unfathomable and before whom the nations are as dust that he lifts up in his hands. Nothing, Isaiah says, and less than nothing are the nations in the eyes of this God. It is the vision of that God that dwarfs the current situation. And that's what David is doing in Psalm 11. And if we don't see, perceive God in his sovereign splendor, in his unshakable serenity over the hapless nations, on his inviolable, on his secure throne, then we're going to see all things with a kind of distorted restlessness. A kind of undue agitation. Because we are not, in fact, oriented toward this one on this throne. This is the foundation of our stability and our hope. Paraphrase T.S. Eliot, this is the still point of the turning world. This is why we're not nostalgic. And we don't flee. Because the one who is, and the one who is to come, is the Lord of the future. The second thing David affirms here, he affirms that this sovereign one is the seeing one. He observes, the text says, from his heavenly vantage point, everyone on earth, his eyes examine them. The sovereign one is omniscient. The idea here is that he's focused. He's, he's a concentrated observer. 
And by examining all, he's testing them. The omniscient God has knowledge, which is a kind of evaluating knowledge, probing knowledge, sifting, testing knowledge. It's another reason David doesn't despair. It's not, it's not just that God is on his throne, but the sovereign one sees and he sifts and he will sort things out. The text says he examines the righteous. He was examining David in this crisis. And he is in sovereign love examining us. But the wicked, he says, and those who love violence, those who are ravaging the very foundations of Israel at this time, the Lord hates with a passion. Now, a few weeks ago, I spent a lot of time on this idea of God's hatred. But the summary of it is, so I'm not going to go back over that, but the summary is, God is love, and because he's perfect love, he hates violent men. Love hates what destroys its beloved. And God showers such men with many kindnesses, to be sure. He gives them time, he gives them space, but eventually judgment falls on them, which is described here as coals and sulfur and a scorching wind as their lot. The violence which they intended for others will end up being their lot. Notice the word uh, lot. It's the same as the word for cup. So that a person either drinks the cup of the Lord, the cup of his mercy, or one drinks the cup of judgment. And so the language in the text anticipates the reality of the final judgment, without which the cosmos is meaningless. No final judgment, no human dignity. So everything, everything, Hebrews 12 tells us this, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And we're undergoing shakings of our own in our day. But everything's shaken so that the unshakable kingdom of God might stand, it might remain, and it might prevail. The church has survived much, 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 much worse than what we are undergoing in many different tribes and languages and tongues and nations she'll survive this just fine the only kingdom which stands is the unshakable kingdom of God finally here David affirms that the Lord is righteous he loves justice the text says that's his identity this is a ground for our hope that the Lord is is just, meaning there's a kind of ordered integrity in his own being. Justice is grounded in his own internal goodness. This is what the throne language means. The Psalms say in other places that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. And this is why when the republic fractures and foundations are destroyed, there is hope. The last line of Psalm 11 here is beautiful and it's important. The upright will see his face. David's thought here has moved to the end of all things. When the God of justice has done justice, when everything that can be shaken is shaken and removed. And he knows that this means 
the fruition of all of his hope, it means he will see God's face. You know, David has moved in this short psalm beyond considerations now of his own safety or even deliverance. He's moved beyond questions of the crumbling social order. His great desire, the desire that's sort of underneath and ordering all the other desires, is not deliverance. But it's communion with, seeing face to face the one on the throne. The most important Christian doctrine in any situation, but in a time of social confusion and chaos, is the doctrine of God. Always and everywhere. David wants to see this one on the throne. Now, we see through a glass darkly. Right? We have only indirect encounters. But our great desire, and we often lose sight of this, our great desire is seeing this God. That's why we're here. And that means seeing him as he is in his ineffable light and glory. What the Christian tradition has called the beatific, the beautiful vision. A kind of act of perception which is at once intellectual and emotional and involving your will. This is the Christian hope. Seeing, perceiving the triune God. And it's remarkable, is it not, that David can move in seven short verses from a social crisis and the prospect of fleeing and abdicating his throne to the seeing of God's face in glory. Can your prayers do that? Can you get from an immediate family crisis to beholding the face of God in everlasting light in about seven lines? This is why these texts are so important, because all prayer, as we've repeatedly seen, is to be oriented to the end, the chief end, the great desire of desiring creatures, the vision of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, the ones with hearts that are sifted by the all-seeing one. Why? For they shall see God. They shall see God. This is our chief occupation, learning to delight in the Holy Trinity. Learning to perceive, even now through a glass darkly, this God and all things in him. David, notice, notice this. He does not take, in this time of crisis, anything that we might call practical action. He doesn't do anything visible. He doesn't issue a single imperative or commands. There are no commands in the psalm. There are no policy statements or press releases. But he does do the most practical thing of all. He confesses who God is. You know, sometimes when we talk about the Holy Trinity, people say, well, that's all nice, but what does it practically mean? 
as if somehow thinking about God is impractical. You're going to spend eternity simply gazing on the face of the Holy Trinity. David does the most practical thing of all here. He confesses who God is. And that confession ends with a desire for the vision of his very face. This is important in a time of turmoil and fracturing. It's important that we confess this one, that we declare this one, that we orient ourselves to this one, that we say the most important fact in reality is that this God is. In closing, I want to note that the greater David, Jesus, the lover of the Psalms, the one who confessed these Psalms in his suffering, he has come. And you might remember, he had counselors who told him to avoid the collision in Jerusalem. And he lived in a time of utter social anarchy and corruption. Religious and political corruption. His friends fled. He stayed. The wicked bent their bows and shot their arrows against him and he bore their violence. He drank the cup of judgment so that we might not have to drink it. The burning sulfur and the scorching wind in this text was his to bear. He felt the fury and the violence of the just God against sin in his own body and soul. And his vindication, Jesus' vindication, his being raised to see the Father's face, it means that all the foundation destroyers, all the great Babylons of the world will be shaken. And you know how the Bible ends. It ends with this unshakable city appearing. The city which we're told has foundations. And we're told there by John that the throne of God, the throne, the same throne mentioned here in Psalm 11, and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants shall see his face. You're destined for the contemplation of this God. We should contemplate him now. What can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed or being destroyed? They can pray Psalm 11, and that is sufficient. Amen.